Um, and then I'm going to take us into Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll stand for that passage. Revelation chapter 18. And after these things, John wrote, he said, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon, the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. The merchants of the earth have brought, have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works, and the cup which she has mixed, mixed double for her. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxurious, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and I'm no widow and will not see sorrow. And therefore her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for the strong is the Lord God who judges her. And the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, the great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And then, excuse me, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys her merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, Fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, marble and cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots. And then I want you to notice this. It's worth circling. And the bodies and souls of men. The fruit that your soul longed for is gone from you, and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster, all who travel by ship, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea, they stood at a distance, and they cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? And they threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. Here's the reaction in heaven to all of this. Rejoice over her, O heaven, 
and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found any more. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, trumpeters shall not be heard in you any more. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you any more. The sound of a millstone will not be heard in you any more. The light of the lamp of a lamp shall not shine in you any more. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride shall not be heard in you any more. For your merchants were the great men of the earth. For by, and this is worth circling too, for by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who were slain on the earth. Now let's stand together and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Some of you are saying, what kind of a sermon is coming? By the way, hold your place in Revelation. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Let's pray together. Father, we long for every bit of our thinking and our doing to be completely dominated by your word and by your perspective. And Lord, we pray that you would honor and bless your word today toward that end. And this important subject that we addressed this morning, and we ask it of you in Jesus name. Amen. Please be seated. Tomorrow we're going to be celebrating a national holiday known as Labor Day. And according to um, the government page that describes the origin of this holiday and the purpose of this holiday, we're told that since 1894, it's a day that's been set aside annually in the United States of America, the first Monday of every September. The purpose of it is to pay tribute to the contributions that workers have made to the strength, prosperity, and well-being of our country. And I'm convinced that as our nation and our world moves further and further away from God's perspective uh, concerning virtually everything, and as we find ourselves currently in the middle of worldwide economic upheaval and uncertainty, that it's good for us as Christians to be reminded of what God has to say about everything in life, including what he has to say 
about labor, about being a Christian employee, about being a Christian employer, and what he thinks about an individual business or what he thinks about a world economy that puts money ahead of people who have been created in his image. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, we have God's instruction concerning how we're to conduct ourselves in this world as Christian employees. As Christians, we're told we are to be employees who are obedient to our employers. The word obedient carries with it the idea of listening carefully to our employers with the purpose that having listened to their instructions, that we will then do exactly what they have instructed us to do. This is called faithfulness. The Christians should be the hardest working workers in any workplace that they're in in the entire world. We are never, ever to be known as lazy or as slackers. We're to put a full day's work in for a full day's pay. There's a certain kind of employee, and we would like to think that no Christian would be characterized by this, but it isn't true. There's a certain kind of employee who likes to argue and fight and be contentious in the workplace and always fighting against the boss and the instructions that are being given, questioning every decision that's made. And Paul tells us here by the Spirit of God that no Christian is to be like that. We are to be an outstanding influence in any workplace that we find ourselves in. So outstanding an influence for the benefit of our boss and the business that we work for, that when they go to look for hiring another person, they will automatically look to hire a Christian. We're to have an obedient heart and an obedient attitude to work, not to be rebellious or outwardly or even in our heart toward our employers. There is one limitation, Paul says here, that we are to do this as to Christ, which means one of the things that it means that is if our employer or our boss asks us to do something that is contrary to God's word, there's a line drawn there and we do not listen and obey that when we're called to lie or to cheat or to steal or so forth. Because if we do that, we will then lose what is more important to us as Christians in life than money or promotion or favor in a workplace, and that is we will lose our Christian witness in that workplace, and we will lose the ability for God to favor us in that workplace in a way that makes people realize that he is real and that he is a part of our lives. We're told in verse 5 that we're to be respectful. That is, we're to obey with fear and trembling. We're to show respect toward our employers and show respect to the position of authority that they have in our lives in that workplace. I've had the privilege in my lifetime to work uh, in a lot of jobs and um, uh, some of them in management and some of them in non-management. And one of the things about working a little while, at least in management positions, is so often the person in the non-management position, the employee position, just wants to complain and fight against everything they're doing and they're all idiots and all this kind of thing until you get put into their shoes. 
It's kind of like an adolescent fighting against a good parent when you've got even good employers or good bosses face this. The adolescent knows everything and then one day they become an adult. What's the old saying? You know, they become 25 years old and then on through life, their parents become um, smarter and smarter as as they grow older because now they're in their shoes. And so often the manager or the boss has a world of things that he's thinking about and having or she is thinking about having to take into consideration. It's a lot more complicated than it looks very often. And they are in need of this kind of of respect and this kind of uh, toward their position as authorities in this in this realm. And so they're in need of our support and our respect. In verse 5, we are to obey, we are to work with sincerity of heart, with uh, fullness of heart, or we're to work on our jobs wholeheartedly, not with uh, with a divided heart, so that our work doesn't get the leftover of our lives. After our hobbies... After our recreations and our other interests and and we show up at work half asleep because we've watched television until midnight and only got five hours of sleep. It also means that we're to be conscientious. We're to do the very highest quality work that we're capable of. We're not all capable of doing the same quality of work, but we are capable of doing our best where it is that God has placed us. Not putting in as little as possible to hold on to the job. Not calling in sick when we aren't sick. Not engaging on personal business on company time. Not showing up uh, chronically uh, late to work. We're We're to come to work every day well rested, ready to give it our wholehearted attention and all of our energy. He tells us in verse 6 that we're not to work or obey with eye service as men pleases. I think any of us that have worked for any length of time uh, in the world, we're familiar with this. This is the employee that only works hard when the boss is around and uh, thinks that the boss is watching. And then, man, I mean, they'll pull the, they'll grab the shovel right out of your hand. Two shovels. They'll look like John Henry or something laying down the railroad tracks. But as soon as that boss gets out of sight, you know, the shovels, both shovels are thrown back into your hands and they won't do anything. We're to be faithful and hardworking all of the time, even when no one else is watching, the Bible says, because God is always watching us. And I mean that in a good sense. We are to work, we're told in verses 6 and 7, as unto the Lord. There's to be that recognition in our lives as Christians that all of us are in what is called the full-time ministry. It's only, you know, I don't know when it started, but it's this idea has started to wane a little bit. But all in my Christian life, there's been this sense of the sacred and the secular, that, you know, if you work for a church or you're a missionary or something like this, you're involved in some kind of sacred calling upon your life. And then, you know, working at at Memorial Hospital or Lucky's or Costco or something, that that's just purely secular. But that's not how the Bible teaches it. Every single one of us are in full-time ministry. And remember that Paul is writing to Christians who are slaves. You think about 
what that would do to a slave, the recognition that what they're doing is ministry as unto the Lord. I mean, up until the time they get saved, here they are, they're holding a job that maybe they hate. Their life is being used in a way that if they were a freed man, they'd never use it that way. And they look at their lives and they're being used and abused by the employer. And they, if they could do anything to get out from under this, one day they hear the gospel. How that Jesus cared about their soul and how he died on the cross for their sins and was buried and rose again on the third day. And if a man or a woman will put their faith in him as their savior, that they'll become a child of God. And so they do that. They put their faith in the Lord and they show up the next day at work and nobody else in the family knows Nobody else in the whole Roman Empire of six million slaves just like them knows that a change has happened in their life. And they show up now in that workplace to begin to work. And everything is different because no longer are they working supremely for that slave boss or for that boss or for that employer. They're working supremely for the Lord. And that job that they hold, that labor that they're doing is no longer a waste, something that they're doing against their will, something that they hate. Now it's been elevated into the realm of the sacred. They're doing it as unto the Lord and the Lord will reward them for it. It's a wonderful way to look at everything in life and work in life as it truly is in the scriptures and truly is For us as Christians, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, for he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. And so it is with us all work that we do as unto the Lord is sanctified. It's made noble because of that motivation. We are to obey, we're told in verse eight, knowing that there is an eternal reward for our faithfulness in the workplace That's coming our way one day, no matter what our position was, no matter whether free, no matter whether a slave, Paul reminds them, reminds us of the eternal reward that comes at the end of this kind of life of just sanctified hard work done for God's glory. He supplies daily bread for our homes through the job that we hold. He allows us to be a witness to people that we would never have contact with, apart from the fact that he's plunked us in every conceivable place in this community and beyond for his purposes. And then after all of that, he ends up rewarding us for it. Whatever the wage is that we're being paid right now, however fairly or unfair that wage is, the Lord is going to make sure to properly reward Christian employers or employees who labor in this way. Then he moves on to speak in verse 9 concerning Christian employers or Christian bosses. And he says that we're to treat our employers, employees rather, in the same way we would want to be treated if the roles were reversed. It's a golden rule, isn't it? The employees are to work hard to do their best for the employer. But Christ is just as demanding of the employer. The employer, Christian employer, must work equally hard to do what's best for the employee. The employees are to to 
treat the employer with respect. The employer is to treat the employees with respect as well. He says that we're to give up threatening. In other words, we are not supposed to use, uh, abuse our power as an employer. We're not to badger or mistreat employees, not verbally and certainly not physically. We're to remember that we have a master in heaven and that one day we're going to stand before him. And we're not going to have a title when we stand before him, the grand poobah of this or the boss of that or the second this or the first vice president or the executive secretary or whatever it might be. All those titles are going to be gone one day and we're going to stand before our Lord and give an account for our faithfulness to these commands of God in the same way that his servants stood before him in the same way that Christian employees stood before this employer. And we're to remember that there's no partiality in God. The earthly master or the earthly boss should remember that the Lord is not impressed with our titles or with our positions. The question one day for every employer, every Christian employer, every Christian employee is that going to be what was the title that we held? But were we faithful to what God called us to as employees, as employers? Were we faithful to what God called us to do in the place that he put us? And I think all of these things are good reminders for us every so often, even if it's familiar territory to many of us. The Lord loves employees. He loves employers. And this is how we can distinguish ourselves as his people in that environment, the work environment, and either position that God has called us into for his glory. Now, there's something in this vein of labor which the Lord dislikes immensely. And he expresses his displeasure in Revelation chapter 18. And you can turn over to that now. In Revelation chapter 18, chapter 17 and 18, the book of Revelation, chapter 17 is a record of God's judgment upon what is known as spiritual Babylon. And in chapter 18, we have a record of God's coming judgment during the great tribulation upon what is known as commercial Babylon. And it is a record of God's judgment upon a worldwide economic system that we are watching develop by the day before our very eyes and have been watching for at least the last 30 years develop in an extraordinary way. Commercial Babylon refers to an economic system based upon the principles of ancient Babylon. It speaks of a world economic system that fights against God for his place, his rightful place, and the hearts and the minds and the soul and the strength of people. And this chapter is not a condemnation of making a living or having nice things 
or even being prosperous. The Bible teaches that we're to be content with food, content with clothing, content with shelter. But it also teaches that godliness and honesty and integrity and obedience to God's word is a path that often leads to material prosperity. Deuteronomy chapter 6. But that doesn't mean that when these things lead to prosperity in our lives, that this kind of wealth should be selfishly amassed for myself or that the wealth is to be spent foolishly on obscene luxury or that I'm to become as covetousness, covetous or as materialistic as the world around me. Jesus taught and said, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This commercial Babylon is a worldwide economic system that steals the heart, the mind, the soul and the strength of men away from God. And then indoctrinates and deceives people into thinking that accumulating money and things is the meaning of life. That that is the purpose of life. It deceives the world into thinking that materialism should be the master passion of their life. You notice in verse 23 of Revelation chapter 18, at the end of it, we're told that it makes merchants the great men of the earth who then put people under the spell of thinking that living for things instead of God is where satisfaction and fulfillment are found. And why do they do it? Why do they seduce the world in this way? Why do they push this lie? Is it because they love people, because they care about people? No, it's only to make money off of them, and God hates such a system. There's nothing wrong with buying and selling. Nothing wrong with capitalism, per se. Nothing wrong with free enterprise, per se. Nothing wrong with giving wages to people on the basis of the experience or the abilities or the skills that they bring to a particular position in a workplace. But a line is crossed in all of this when an individual business or a world economy fights against God for his place of supremacy in the hearts and the minds and the soul and the strength of people. And this system that calls Jesus a liar about where life and meaning is truly found. In verses 1 through 8, we have the destruction of commercial Babylon described. After witnessing the destruction of religious Babylon in chapter 17, John sees another angel, verse 1, coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory, the majesty of this angel. And he declares, verse 2, the fall of Babylon and this 
Babylon is a large, prosperous city that's going to be the economic and the commercial center of the world during the tribulation period. It can refer to a rebuilt uh, Babylon. Many think Babylon's going to be rebuilt and the Euphrates is, uh, river is going to be developed into a ship-bearing river and all. And that seems unlikely because in verses 17 through 19, this verse is clearly a seaport. And some people think that it refers to a seaport city like London or New York or Los Angeles that's called Babylon because of its vital place in this idolatrous Babylonian commercial system that will exist at that time. Notice his description in verses 2 and 3, his description of Babylon and the reasons given for her judgment. Verse 2, it has become the dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. This commercial Babylon will be completely dominated by demonic spirits as opposed to the Holy Spirit. There will be a demonic spirit behind all of it, behind all of its fashions, behind all of its advertising, behind all of its covetousness, behind all of the greed that it nurtures and excites in people. And all of this is idolatry, the worship of created things, one of the things that ancient Babylon was known for. Notice in verse 3 that all of the nations will at that time have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. In other words, the whole world is going to follow her into this idolatry. You look at the world today, especially those of you who are a little bit older, and look at how it's changed in this area in the world in the last few decades. What is the religion of the world What's its master passion? The master passion of the world is wealth. It is money. It is materialism and things. When there are elections, what's the most important issue to the people? Not righteousness, not godliness, not obedience to God, which is the only sure foundation for a nation and for a people. The great, great concern is the economy. And, and you can pick up this quote. It gets repeated every so often. But I was reading a magazine oh, probably oh, four weeks ago or so. And I thought that would be a great quote to just cut out. And then, like all great ideas that I have, I just go on about my business and throw the magazine away. And then I go to try and find the quote on the website, and I have to have a subscription number to get into the website. But it was something like this, where somebody, they had pulled a quote where somebody had said uh, concerning the next president of the United States, if he would promise me a job, I'd vote for the devil himself. And that's, not, that's an attitude that's increasingly common in our country and in the world. Notice in verse 3, the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. In other words, the world economy becomes more powerful than individual kings. 
This world economy becomes more powerful than even nations. Kings and political leaders will compromise every command of God in order to have a significant place in this commercial Babylon. They'll be afraid that they don't get their foot in the door. This commercial Babylon, and we see it all around us like never before in history. The development of it before our very eyes, even before the Great Tribulation. Then notice in verse 3, the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. The merchants of the earth will be willing to sell their very souls in order to become rich in this godless commercialism. And they will make a lot of money. But the problem, God warns, is that it's going to disappear in an hour. When I make a fortune by disobeying God's word and his priorities, then I'm building on something that has no future. It has to collapse. And when it collapses, it'll happen fast. And we've already seen that in recent history. Notice in verses four through eight that another voice from heaven calls on all of God's people to come out of her, to distance themselves from her. And and disassociate themselves from her, lest, verse 4, they get caught in her sin and share her judgment. Yes, there's a lot of money to be made there, but it's an affront, an affront to God, and he will destroy it. It is only uncompromising obedience to God's word that keeps us clear of what is headed for judgment In this world, her sins, verse five, have reached to heaven. They've gotten God's attention and God has remembered her iniquities. In other words, God is watching. He sees all of it. He hears every lie. He watches every cut corner, every cheated customer, every cheated employee, every bit of oppression that is placed upon people. And then in verse 6, the voice calls for double judgment to be repaid to her. And she won't escape judgment. She'll be repaid for all of the evil and all of the unrighteousness that she's resorted to doing in order to get all of her glory and her wealth. And notice significantly in verse 7, she considers herself to be indestructible beyond judgment. She's going to think of herself this world economic system is going to think I'm in control, I'm safe and and far from any kind of sorrow. She's too big now. There's nothing even the nations of the world can do to stop her and control her. Everyone is powerless. She's bigger than nations. She's bigger than kings. But she forgets that there's a God in heaven. That's watching everything that goes on in this world. And he knows how to stop her. And verse 8, her plagues will come, we're told, in one day. Death and mourning and famine. And she'll be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord who judges her. And it will happen in a day. And the swiftness of this judgment and the collapse of that system during the great tribulation period. it's It's repeated over and over again. In the chapter, verse 8, one day, verse 10, one hour, verse 17, one hour, verse 19, one hour. 
And God can bring the economy of the world to a screeching halt or to destruction in an instant. Translation. Why belabor the point? What's the application? Don't make it your God. Don't make money your God. Don't make this system your God. Don't give it the place that it is demanding, even of some of us here this morning where we work, the place in our life that belongs only to God. Don't make this system your security. Don't invest your life in what can be destroyed in an hour. But as Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these other things will be added unto you. Invest in God's kingdom and what has an eternal reward and is eternal. Notice the reaction of on earth to her destruction in verses 9 through 19. First, in verses 9 and 10, there's the lamentation of the kings of the earth. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her. They're going to weep and lament when they see the smoke of her burning. The most powerful men in the world are powerless to stop this. When it happens, all they can do is mourn. They're going to be shocked when it occurs. And they'll lament over how quickly her judgment came upon her. I mean, she was too big to fail. I mean, so great, so big, so mighty, and yet she couldn't prevent it. Godliness is the greatest national defense a nation can have. The Bible says that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach. To every people, any people. I've watched in the last 20 years, presidential elections. I watched it in the Clinton period, the Bush period. Then, well, even longer than 20 years. Both Bush presidencies and then into the Obama presidency. And the speeches changed during that time. Where what the presidents began to speak of in terms of representing the greatness of a nation, less and less mention of God, less and less mention of the character of godly people, hard work, industry, saving, these kind of things that characterized the American workforce that then was instrumental in God's hands, this kind of righteousness on its own level that God was able to bless. And now the exporting out into the world is not the character that was behind all of this to make the greatest economic nation in the history of the world. Now what we export is the free enterprise system. We, we export uh, capitalism as if this thing just arises up out of nowhere, independent of God or independent of character. And then we're shocked to discover in the different places of the world that we export it to that it does not work because the people do not have the character that's required to make it work. And we see the dream fleeing before our very eyes because our nation is losing the character that's required for those things to be possible in a nation. 
It is righteousness that makes a nation great and sustains greatness and nothing else. Don't believe that it's free trade or free enterprise or our economic machine or our economy that makes us great. That never makes a nation great. That is a byproduct of a nation's true greatness. And if a nation gets that turned around, they're on the way down in a big way. The lamentation of the merchants over her destruction in verses 11 through 17. They're going to weep and mourn, verse 11, because no one buys their merchandise anymore. The source of their income is gone. And it's fascinating to me, the merchandise is described there in verses 12 and 13. And there's a list of about 28 items, most of them costly or luxury items. And as you read through that list, you almost feel like you're walking through a high-end mall of some kind. And it, it's a witness to how insatiable covetousness is. That no matter how much you have, it's always got to be bigger and better and more luxurious. And that's the lie of commercial Babylon, that life and satisfaction can be found in this place, but it cannot be found in this place. Its own system, as you would look at it critically, it testifies to the fact, it witnesses against itself. All day, every day. And then, fascinating, there at the end of verse 13, as I told you to make notice of and perhaps even circle, in terms of the buying and the selling, it comes right down to the bodies and the souls of men. And here's the ugly side of this commercial Babylon. Since it does not exist out of any concern for God or man, but only out of a motivation of money, the bodies and the souls of men are unimportant to them. And so the view of human beings from the vantage point of this commercial Babylon and if this is the view of the business that you own or you run or the business that you're a part of, then that business is already a part of this commercial Babylon where they view men and women and children as just these things that exist to be used to feed the economic machine. And they're used like they're just machines themselves or animals, as if they are people without a soul, as if they weren't made in the image of God, as if they do not have a creator. And they are taken and they use them and they use their strength and their vitality and their health and their youth and they crush them and they throw them away. And when they've used them up, they just go find more and plug them into their place. People are nothing. The machine is everything. Money is the only consideration as opposed to the two great commandments that God has given us. And that is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. And then number two, to love our neighbor as ourself. 
unbelievable wealth is being made off of it and will be during that tribulation period. It will be made off of the health and the welfare of the poor. And that's sin in the eyes of God. And it's unfair in his eyes. And the world is going to answer to a higher law than the laws of the land one day. And so if a person lives in a corrupt country in this world that allows people to be used in this way, and then a person makes themselves rich from it, they shouldn't think that it's okay just because man's corrupt laws allow for it. They should realize that one day they're going to answer to God. It is not, please don't misunderstand me, and I know some will, it is not that a business should not make a profit. It's not that a business cannot demand a full day's work for a full day's pay. But it is never to go to this place where this becomes the attitude toward people, that they're just these soulless creatures that can be used and abused. And so the merchants get rich, the people get their luxuries, but behind the scenes, there's slave labor behind it, where people are being treated like animals. And God sees it, and he'll judge it. And they lament there in verses 14 through 17, these merchants, they can't hide their sorrow. What's dearest to them in life has been destroyed. Their God has died before their very eyes. All of their wealth, all of their security gone. No tears for the people that they've used and abused. But only for this. And heaven does not take any pity on those kinds of terrible, wretched priorities. Notice the reaction of the shipbuilders. In verses 17 through 19, all of the traders who profited in in transporting all this commercial Babylon around the world, they stood at a distance watching her destruction and burning. And they say, verse 18, what is like this great city? It's unbelievable to them that this has happened. Then in verse 19, they mourned and they wept and they wailed at the loss of this commercial Babylon that made them all wealthy. In one hour it was gone. And then finally, I want you to notice the reaction in heaven over the destruction of this commercial Babylon, verses 20 through 24. A call is made in heaven to rejoice, including the holy apostles and the prophets, for the reason that God has avenged the world's persecution and ill treatment of the righteous. While the wicked and the ungodly are weeping on the earth, Heaven is going to be called to rejoice at the time of the judgment of that system. And so often throughout history, God's people have been used as slaves to fuel an economy or been martyred standing against this kind of abuse of people. I'll tell you, vengeance can be left to the Lord. He will be faithful to repay it. We're told in verse 21 that a mighty angel takes a stone like a great millstone. That's a big stone. You ever wander around a pond or something as a kid? You wanted to throw rocks into the pond to see how big of a splash you could make and then watch it disappear. 
And then you would watch the ripples go until finally they disappeared. You'd always hunt for the biggest rock first, right? And then work your way down to these other rocks. This angel takes a stone like a great millstone. He throws it into the sea as a demonstration of how violent and how complete the overthrow of Babylon is going to be. It's going to sink like a large stone thrown into the sea. It's just going to disappear completely. Big splash. And then it's gone. And then I want you to notice the reasons for her destruction are given again in verses 23 and 24. For her merchants were the great men of the earth. The world esteems commercialism and materialism more highly than the voice of God. The merchants were considered the great men of God instead of prophets and apostles and voices for righteousness, the voice of men and women who love God and live for God, want to be an influence for God. And you look at it today, which has the greater influence upon our nation and upon our world? Those who call men and women to the worship of the Lord as their creator and as their savior or those who call upon the world to ignore the creator and worship the creation. Look at all of the television commercials and the advertisement in print and on the Internet and all calling people to worship materialism to make it the most important thing in their life rather than God. Why? Because it's the religion of the world. Wealth and materialism. In verse 24, for in her was found the blood of the prophets and saints and of all who were slain on the earth. She was guilty of murdering the prophets and the saints and all who would oppose her. And the blood of those oppressed and crushed by her economic machine that put money ahead of people in a way that was an offense to God. You think about how many people have died and are dying even today, endeavoring to stand up to drug trafficking and human trafficking, the trafficking of prostitutes and prostitution, the moving of slaves around the world. All around the world this goes on. And the powers that are behind it are becoming exponentially greater by the day than the power and the voices who are speaking out against it. It's all a part of commercial Babylon. In commercial Babylon, people are viewed as just a part of an economic machine in which they are free to be used and abused and then thrown away and then replaced by the next batch of human beings who are then treated likewise. And on and on it goes. But people are not machines to be used in this way. They are human beings created in the image of God 
that God did not create human beings for the purpose of being abused or just to supply the labor for some commercial Babylon. People are to be viewed in this world as more important than money because they are to God. And I hope that our time spent in God's word this morning helps us to know how to be the employees and the employers that God wants us to be, but also to protect us from coming under the spell or under the sorcery of the commercial Babylon that is developing around all around us worldwide. Again, nothing wrong with making a living, nothing wrong with prospering, nothing wrong with hiring and firing as is necessary, these kinds of things. But we must never cross the line and forget that people are not creatorless beings placed upon the earth to feed the machine. And we must be very careful as Christians today because of the economic climate of the day and of the world, and it's only going to get worse, of falling prey to a Babylonian commercial system that will begin to demand the place in our life that belongs only to God, our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. The three great characteristics of commercial Babylon, casting a spell, convincing people that fulfillment and meaning in life is found not in God, but in material things. Ceasing to view people as people, but viewing them as things. And then they push their religion so that they demand a place, a priority in people's lives that belongs only to God. I'll tell you, we need to hear it. We need it to be sown into our lives so that we understand what's happening in this world around us on every level and where to make a stand and where not to make a stand and how to be on the right side of God in a world that is moving further and further away from God. These lessons are not just important as it relates to some population that will be living during the Great Tribulation. It's important that these truths fashion our lives and our thinking and our heart and emotions as God's people in the place that he has put us to work or to oversee or be the boss for his glory. Let's stand together and we'll pray.